0: And uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We have uh, this year adopted the practice that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we take a break from the normal sermon series that we're going through and focus on one particular aspect of the Christian life, one practical aspect of how to live as a Christian And this month, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and considering the sum of the Christian life. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the sum of the Christian life. Give attention now as we read God's holy word. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate author of Your Word. We come now confessing, O Lord, that without the Spirit's work, we would not have this Word, and that even now, without the Spirit's work, we cannot understand this Word. And so we ask You to pour out Your Spirit in the name of Your Son, that we might understand, and in understanding, be transformed to serve You. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. I had the opportunity this weekend to build a shed in my backyard, and if you've ever built something, you know that there's a lot of banging and swinging of tools. In particular, as I built this shed, I had to level out a certain spot in the backyard and set up uh, foundation stones so that when I built the shed on top of the stones, they would not move. Now The way that I did it may not have been the most efficient way, but uh, I dug out the organic material and then used a tamper to flatten the earth and pack it down. Now, if you don't know what a tamper is, it's a big pole with a big heavy metal square on the bottom, and you just bang it in the dirt until you can't go any further. Well, sometimes when you've found that you've packed it insufficiently, at least by hand, you slam the tamper down, and then you get a reverb that goes back through your hand. That happened to me more times than I would like to admit. But when you slam it down and you get the reverb back in your hand, you realize that Newton was right. When, when Newton gave us his third law of motion, you know what the third law of motion is. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And you can see that principle of physics at work when you try to tamp the dirt, or perhaps when you swing an axe into a tree, or perhaps when you hit the baseball and you feel the shiver back up your arm. We know that Newton's law is true in the world of physics, but his law is also true, or at least it's a very good illustration of what happens in the world of the spirit, in the world of religion. In the sum total of what the Christian life is, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. For everything that God does in our lives, the renewed heart, the Christian heart, responds in the same manner. Now, in this passage, we're going to be looking at the sum of the Christian life. And what the sum of the Christian life means is that this principle that Paul the Apostle gives to us in this passage is the whole substance of what it means to live as a Christian. This passage gives you the answer to every question about practical Christian living. This is the sum total of it. What is Christian discipleship? Paul the Apostle is going to tell us in this passage. But as we look at Christian discipleship, we have to start with God's action. Because as uh, we're going to learn in this passage, our life before God, living as a Christian, is merely an equal and opposite reaction to God's primary action. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is God's action? What has God done to save his people? What is the great work that God did that we now respond to as Christians? Well, quite simply, the great work of God's salvation is that in the good pleasure of the Father, he sent his only begotten Son to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin by the power of the Spirit. The great action of God is that it was the Father's will to send the Son to die by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that God's action moves from Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And now the Christian life is an opposite reaction to that. Christian discipleship is in the power of the Spirit, imitating the example of the Christ, doing the will of the Father. It was the Father's will that sent the Son by the Spirit. The Christian life is in the power of the Spirit. We imitate the Son doing the will of the Father. And we're going to see that in this passage. In particular, what we're going to see is that the sum total of the Christian life is that in the power of the Spirit... We imitate Christ as a living sacrifice, doing the will of the Father. In the power of the Spirit, we imitate Christ as a living sacrifice, doing the will of the Father. Verse uh, 1a is the power of the Spirit. Verse 1b is the example of the Son. And verse 2 is the will of the Father. Verse 1a is the power of the Spirit. Verse 1b is the example of the Son. And verse 2 is the will of the Father. Now before we get into the details of this passage, we need one more introductory remark. And this is an essential thing to realize about the Christian life especially as we move into this passage. If you've ever heard a sermon series on the book of Romans or you've ever studied the book of Romans for yourself, you'll know that chapter 12 marks a, a, a separate section of the book of Romans. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul is doing nothing but expounding the gospel of God's power. Chapters 1 through 11 is all theology and exposition of Christ and Him crucified. When you come now to chapter 12, Paul transitions to apply that gospel to the people's lives. And the way that he applies it to us, it's very important to understand what he's doing in these two verses. You know, we, we often speak about the Trinity, the Trinity is an essential element of the Christian faith. In fact, in many ways, the Trinity is the only element of the Christian faith. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you cannot be a Christian. But we also need to understand that the Trinity is a very abstract idea. The Trinity is a very high and mysterious doctrine that is beyond our grasp. The doctrine of the Trinity is, as it were, a precious gem that God has given to us, and encased in the church and set boundaries around it and said, Marvel at this, but don't touch. Glory in this doctrine of the Trinity, but don't mess with it. Don't fiddle with it. Don't put fingerprints on it. That's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. However, the way that God saves us and the way that we experience salvation and the way that we live out salvation is also Trinitarian. The way that we live out our salvation is a Trinitarian way. And Paul is going to show us that here, but he does it not with abstract doctrine. He doesn't do it abstractly by talking about the persons of the Trinity. He does it experientially. Now, that's a big 50-cent word. Well, Well, inflation's upon us. That's a $2 word. That's a big $2 word that simply means practical living experience of God's power. Experientially means practical living experience of God's power. The older Reformed authors used to talk about experimental religion or true Christian experience all the time. Many times, the apostles, as they write in the New Testament, operate or they describe things experientially. What does that mean? They describe the power of God in the way that it touches you, in the way that it comes to your heart and grabs hold of you and makes you one of his people. And that's what Paul does in this passage. So we began by looking at the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, as he opens this passage, begins by saying, I beseech you. Now, in Greek, this word beseech is one word. It's parakaleo. Parakaleo is the word that he uses. We often translate this word as beseech. It's actually a very difficult word to translate because the the idea behind this word is not simply beseeching. It's not even simply exhorting. If you have the New King James, there's a footnote on this word. It says to urge. This word has a deeper and fuller idea behind it. It's not just urging, beseeching, or exhorting. The word itself actually means to call to, meaning to call someone to your side, to call someone next to you. This is a word that's often translated as beseech, but this word is also a word that's used to describe the third person of the Trinity. If you turn with me to John chapter 16. John. Chapter, I'm um, sorry, uh, John 15, right before 16. John chapter 15, verse 26. Christ is speaking about his departure from the world. The disciples are saddened by this. And Christ tells them in John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Notice the word that's translated as Helper in this passage. The word translated Helper in this passage is the same word from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paraclete. The word translated helper here is paraclete, meaning one who calls alongside, one who calls to you and brings you along his own side. Now, this is a very important idea when we think about the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called, capital H, the helper. The Holy Spirit is called, capital B, the beseecher. The Holy Spirit is capital E, the exhorter. The Holy Spirit is the one through whose power God speaks to you and urges and beseeches you to follow Christ's example. That is the Spirit's work. But now notice what Paul does in Romans 12:1. He says, I beseech you. I urge you. I exhort you. You see, the Spirit works through his minister's. In particular, the Spirit worked through the apostles. And so when the apostle is writing this passage down, when he was writing to the Romans, and as we're reading this here, it is the Holy Spirit, through the apostle Paul, who is urging and exhorting you, who is reaching out to you and compelling you by his power to respond to what he's going to say. This is primarily how the power of the Spirit comes to your life. The power of the Spirit is present in the life of a Christian by convicting and converting, by comforting and building up believers unto salvation. That's how the Holy Spirit expresses his power to you. And it's captured in this one word, I exhort you, I beseech you. You know, the the work of the Spirit is, it's a lot like when parents are teaching a child to walk. Perhaps you've experienced this as parents or perhaps you've seen this in other parents. When when the baby is learning to walk, what do parents do? Well, they set the baby up on his feet. Maybe he has a hand on the couch. And then mom or dad will step a few steps away and say, all right, come here. Come get me. Come to where I am. I want you to be where I am. Come, you can do it. Keep going. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he exhorts you, when the Holy Spirit encourages you. You see, what the Holy Spirit is doing is he is standing a little bit in front of you as you're learning to walk as a Christian, and he holds out his hand and says, Come to me. Keep going. Keep coming. You can do it through the power of Christ. Keep coming. Or perhaps if you played sports, it's like a coach at the finish line. And you're running with everything that you have and you're about to give up and you see your coach at the finish line and he's rooting you on and cheering you on. Keep going all the way through the finish line. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of the believer. Now there's a practical application here. I know we've only gotten to one word, but this is so critical to the Christian life. You have to understand the direction of the Spirit's work. You see, we often think that when God is encouraging us, we tend to think God comes to where we are and encourages us to stay there. We often think that God comes to where we find ourselves at any particular point, and that when God encourages us, he says, it's okay, you can sit down here in the mud, that's fine. We tend to think that God's encouragement is a... Uh, gratification of our own sinful desires. But that's not what this word means. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes to you. He does meet you where you are. But his exhortations are to bring you into the place where Christ is. Wasn't that Christ's promise in John 14? I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you might be also. I will bring you... To myself. And so the Holy Spirit is doing that by exhorting and encouraging us. But notice what else the Holy Spirit does here. How it is that the Holy Spirit works. Look at what Paul says. I beseech you therefore, brethren. It's very important that he calls these people brethren. This is an exhortation to those who are truly united to Christ and have true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls them brethren. Paul calls them brethren, and it's to the brethren that the Holy Spirit says, I encourage you, I exhort you, brethren, by the mercies of God. This is often how the Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer. If you have been touched at all by God's holiness... If you have been struck at all by the conviction of your sins, if God has even given you a portion of the knowledge of his magnitude and greatness, you bow yourself in the dust and you acknowledge that you're a sinner unworthy of any of God's mercies to you. Jacob said that at the end of his life. As we read the book of Genesis, Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of the mercies that Jehovah has given to me. And those who have been humbled by God's law, those who have been humbled by his holiness, receive the mercies. The Holy Spirit uses mercy to exhort God's people. He reminds you of God's loving kindness, of his long-suffering, of the ways that he's forgiven you of your sins in the past, reminding you of those things to encourage you to keep going. Just like when you taught your son or daughter to walk. I am willing to bet they fell down once or twice. I'm willing to bet that they messed up a few times. And you picked them back up, stepped back a few steps and said, let's try it again. Let's keep going. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here with God's people. This word mercies is a very interesting word. It simply means God's heart of compassion to those that are suffering. His compassionate and uh, his heart of pity to those that are dealing with the effects of sin. This, by the way, this mercy that the Holy Spirit reminds us of, this mercy that's extended to the brethren is one of the benefits that comes from adoption. Adoption. The doctrine of adoption is that God, through the work of the Lord Jesus, forgives you of your sins and then makes you one of his adopted children. Once you have been adopted through Christ, God then looks upon you as a merciful and pitying father. He has compassion upon you even as a father has compassion on his own son. And this pity is a pity that is given to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn just really quickly to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see how this is also part of the power of the Spirit. Paul is not just bringing these ideas together haphazardly. You see in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Paul the Apostle is reminding the brethren... For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You see, Paul the Apostle calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption. And it is those who are adopted that receive God the Father's pity. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, If you have failed in the Christian life, God pities you. God has mercy upon you. God has compassion upon his people because he has adopted you through the Lord Jesus Christ and being adopted in him, you are part of the number. You are on the roll book of heaven and God looks at you as his child and says, keep going, keep coming, keep coming to me. But that's not all the Holy Spirit does. He exhorts us. He reminds us of God's pity. And then he tells us what to do. Look at what he says. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This finally is the thing the Holy Spirit is exhorting you to. If you want to know the answer to the question, what does God want me to do today? God wants you to present your body a living sacrifice. What, what should I do today in the Christian life? How can I serve God today? Present your body a living sacrifice. Offer yourself, body and soul, to God's service. That's what this phrase means. When Paul says to offer your body, he's speaking about your whole person. He's not as if he's saying, you can offer your body, but your mind can be a million miles away. That's not the point. When he talks about your body, he's talking about your entire self. And, you know, this really is uh, a very healthy way of talking about ourselves, isn't it? We think all kinds of thoughts, don't we? But when we execute those thoughts, when we do the things we want to do, what do we have to use? We use our body. I conceived the idea of building a shed, and in my mind, the shed was built and perfect, level square, everything was exactly as it should be. But it didn't actually take shape until I used my body to do it. Likewise, in our sins and in our obedience. When we sin against God, we sin with the body. When we obey God, we obey with the body. The body is integral to who you are. So Paul says, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. And so Paul begins with the power of the Spirit. One final Just exhortation and and practical application here before we move on to the example of the Son and the will of the Father. Understand what the Holy Spirit is doing at this time. The Holy Spirit is right now not in the business of revealing new knowledge, the Holy Spirit is right now not in the business of performing miracles. He can if he wanted to. But you see, the purpose of the Spirit, what the Spirit is doing in your life right now, through His almighty power, is exhorting you to walk in the ways of God, so that you do not suffer the fate of Israel. Remember we read in Isaiah 65? The Lord says, I've stretched out my hands all day long to a stubborn and rebellious people, and they provoke me to anger daily by worshiping the idols. Now, in Christ, to you, church, the Holy Spirit is still stretching out his hands. Jehovah is still reaching out to you, exhorting you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Understand that when you feel conviction of sin, when you draw comfort from the promises of the gospel, that's the work of the Spirit. That's the Spirit working in your life to bring you along in the example of Christ. Well, let's see what this example of Christ is. Notice what Paul says here. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth, He came and took on a true human nature. The purpose of him taking on a true human body was ultimately to offer that body as a sacrifice to his father to satisfy the wrath against sin. The whole sum and substance of what Jesus Christ came to do was to receive a body in order to lay down that body. He lived in order that he might die. His entire purpose was to die on the cross. Likewise, Paul now says in an equal and opposite reaction to that, the whole sum and substance of your discipleship is to take your body and offer it as a sacrifice to God. But notice some very important things. First off, our sacrifice is a living sacrifice. You see, the Lord Jesus, because he had to pay the penalty for sin, his sacrifice ultimately had to result in his death. Because as the Lord warned Adam in the Garden of Eden, the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Death is the penalty for sin. And in order for man to be saved, somebody had to die. Christ did that on behalf of his people. Now what that then means for us, is that we can offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. Our bodies no longer need to die to suffer the penalty for sin because Christ has already accomplished it. What's interesting, if you compare this statement with the Old Testament sacrificial system, what had to happen in the Old Testament system? Well, if you wanted to worship Jehovah, you had to come to the temple... And you had to bring your bulls and your goats and your sheep. And you put your hand on the bulls and the goats and the sheep. And then the priest would take that bull as representing you. And the first thing he would do is kill it. You see, in the Old Testament, before Christ came, the worshiper could not serve God without a representative. God is so holy that you cannot offer anything to him unless it is perfect, spotless, and without sin. For us to serve God, we had to have a substitute. Now that the substitute has been offered, we no longer need to offer bulls and goats and sheep. We now offer ourselves. We now offer our own bodies as sacrifices to God. Here's another uh, area in which Christian discipleship is often misunderstood. We, We recognize that because Christ has died the Old Testament system with bulls and goats and sheep is done away with, we tend then to think there's no more sacrifices needed. There's no more offerings we have to make. Christ has paid it all. Hallelujah. He has paid it all. There is no more offering for sin that needs to be given. But the response to his offering is not that you don't sacrifice anymore. The response to his offering is that you sacrifice yourself to him. You yourself are the offering on the altar. You yourself are the sacrifice that God wants from you. And Paul says you are to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice what else he says about this. In light of the work of Christ, you and your body is holy and acceptable to God through the imputed righteousness of Christ that Paul spends many chapters speaking about in the book of Romans because of his perfect sacrifice you are now holy and you are acceptable in God's sight offer yourself to him therefore there's great encouragement here brothers and sisters because if you're like me you fail in the Christian life almost daily well daily, hourly, minute by minute. You may be in the prayer closet confessing and having great communion with the Lord and then when you step out into the real world, all of the sin and and pride and whatever it is in your heart, it just comes right back out. But you see, in Christ, God has already declared you holy and acceptable to Him. He will receive your offering if you give it to Him. As the Holy Spirit exhorts us to, in imitation of the example of Christ. There's one final thing here that we need to pay attention to. When he talks about the example of Christ, he says at the end, This is your reasonable service. This is your reasonable service. These words in Greek, if you literally translate it, the words in Greek mean logical worship. Reasonable service, logical worship. The word translated service here is another word for worship. It's latria. Perhaps you've heard that word before. This is a word that means worship that is owed to God alone. The Roman Catholics make a distinction. When we accuse them of worshiping Mary, they'll say, no, we don't give Mary latria. We give her dulia. They make a distinction between the types of worship. Well, in this passage, Paul uses the word that everyone agrees with means divine worship. And he says, offering yourself as a living sacrifice is reasonable. It is the logical way that you worship. What does Paul mean here? There's a lot of discussion about what is meant here. Some think he's referring to the worship of the mind. We worship God with our reason. And that what Paul is exhorting us to is to think God's thoughts after him. I think that's part of it, but that doesn't quite get to the nature of of what Paul is dealing with. Because he just said at the beginning of the verse, middle of the verse, present your body a living sacrifice. So why would he take offering of the body and reduce it down to the rational faculty? Doesn't seem to make sense to me. What I think Paul is saying is that this is the only logical conclusion to the great work of God he's done for you. You see, the great work of God in saving you is that Jesus Christ offered himself to you. It only stands to reason that you should offer yourself to him. It only stands to reason that the only appropriate response is that I become God's servant. I am, as it were, a living sacrifice on the altar of his mercy, and as St. Augustine prayed, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command." That's the heart of the Christian. That's what Paul is saying here. Whatever you want to do with me, do it. And grant me the strength by your grace to fulfill your good pleasure. That's what it means to be this kind of sacrifice. Now, Paul the Apostle exemplifies this attitude in Galatians chapter 2. And I want to just remind you, because we're talking about Christian duty. We're talking about Christian discipleship here and what it is you're supposed to do as a Christian We can often fall into a trap when we talk about the Christian life, and that trap is the old trap of the Pharisees. It's the old trap of legalism. It's the old trap of saying, well, God wants me to do this, so I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and determine to do this because God says I'm going to do this. What ends up happening is you fail, and you become discouraged, bitter, and angry Because you tried to do God's will with man's power. Look at Galatians chapter 2, and Paul embodies for us this dynamic. And the dynamic that Paul is exhorting us to is is a dynamic of love. It's a dynamic of love. Look at what Paul says, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see how Paul's whole ethos of his life was that it's not me, it's Christ. Paul the Apostle is dead. I I, I have been crucified with Christ. I am nothing. And yet the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me in love to save me from my sins. I, in love, respond and give myself to him. This is your reasonable service. A couple of very important applications here. First, you notice in Romans 12, Paul says that this is your reasonable service. This is how you worship God. What he's talking about here is not the outward form of worship. He's not giving us directions for how you set an order of worship or what songs to sing or how long sermons should be. What Paul is describing here is the heart and the sum of what it means to worship God. This should be your heart attitude every time you come into God's presence in public, in the family, and in private, daily, each one by himself, as the Westminster Confession says. This is the heart attitude that we cultivate by offering ourselves to God. This is ultimately what we're doing. We're not there to pull out the laundry list. We're not there to pull out the big to-do list. We're not even primarily there to pull out the legitimate prayer requests that are in our family and our church body, though there is a place for all of those things. What we are there primarily to do is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. You know, the title for this sermon comes from John Calvin's Institutes. And in the chapter where John Calvin talks about the sum of the Christian life, he speaks about self-denial. Ultimately, to do this, you have to deny yourself. And put your desires to the side. Put off the old man, as Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. But I also want to give you something from Calvin's own writings. Calvin had a motto. and, And his motto is a very apt motto to describe this passage. He would say, promptly and sincerely, O Lord, I offer you my heart. Promptly and sincerely, O Lord, I offer to you my heart to do with it as you will. And this is the example of Christ. This is the heart of Christian discipleship. And this is how we are to come to God in worship. This is to be our attitude towards Him. Now, the second practical application here is that this is... Contrary. This is in direct opposition to what I'm going to call retail religion. What is retail religion? Well, retail religion is what most American Christianity is. Most American Christianity is set up like a supermarket. Do you want uh, organic carrots or do you want non organic carrots? Do you want free range eggs or not free range eggs? You can choose whatever you like in the supermarket. It's all available to you. Most Americans approach Christianity that way, and they go to churches based upon what they like. Does it meet my needs? Does it satisfy what I want out of a church? Will it get me from point A to point B? A lot of people approach churches the way we approach pickup trucks. Does it have AC? Does it have heated seats? And does it get XM radio? If it doesn't, I don't want to buy it. Now, that kind of thinking is okay when you're buying a pickup truck, but when you're worshiping the living God, the whole point is that it's God's will and not yours. It's God's ways and not your ways. It's God's thoughts and not your thoughts. You remember Isaiah 65? The Lord rebuked Israel and said, they do not follow the good way. They follow their own thoughts. They follow their own mind. They follow their own desires. And so Paul the Apostle here reminds us and exhorts us that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Well, he now concludes, what's the purpose of this? The purpose of this is so that you can do the will of the Father. This is now verse 2. Paul now moves into doing the will of the Father. You'll notice... At the end of verse 2, he calls it the will of God. Often in the New Testament, when God is used in this way, just the word God by itself, it's often a reference simply to the Father. The Father is the one who's called God simply. When Jesus Christ is talked about, he's either called Jesus Christ, Son of God. When the Holy Spirit is talked about, it's usually called the Spirit of Adoption, the Spirit of Truth, the Helper. There's other titles But normally when God is by itself, it refers to the Father. That's what it refers to in this place because it is the Father's will that governs everything. It is the Father's will that um, dictates whatsoever comes to pass. And so Paul says we offer ourselves so that we can do the will of the Father. Notice what he says. He says, offer yourself in worship and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. First thing is, he says, do not be conformed to this world. The, the reference of this world refers to the world of sinners, those who are in rebellion to God. And he says, do not follow the same scheme of the world. You know, when I built my shed, I, I bought a kit from Sam's Club. And so there was a nice instruction manual that had the whole schematic laid out for how to do this thing. It was so well-engineered that even with my mistakes and stupidity, it's still standing. That's a well-engineered shed. And the steps, the schematic, was well laid out. The word schematic is what Paul is using in this passage. Don't be conformed to the scheme, the schematic of this world. What is the schematic of this world? Well, the schematic, the plan of this world is rebellion against God. It's following the ways of their own hearts. It's sinful opposition to God and His commandments. That's how this world works. You know, this world is ruled by an unholy trinity. We in the church are ruled by the holy trinity. This world is ruled by an unholy trinity. Me, myself, and I. That's how this world operates. Paul says, do not be conformed to that. But... Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When he uses the word conformed, this is a word that means somebody is forcing you into the mold. There's an idea of being forced into somebody else's plan. When he uses the word transformed, it's the word metamorphosis. Literally, it's the word metamorphosis. So when he says be transformed, He's describing a work of transformation that takes you from being one kind of thing into a completely different kind of thing. Think about the way that a butterfly grows. You have the caterpillar on the leaf, and then the caterpillar makes the cocoon, and when the butterfly comes out, it looks completely different from what the caterpillar was. This is the transformation that Paul is talking about. It's a transformation that is beyond your power, and it's beyond your ability. And then he says, the way that you're supposed to do this. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This phrase, renewing, refers to uh, the same idea as metamorphosis, but it refers to being created of a different kind of thing. Being renewed such that you are not what you were before. This does not mean new as in a second, third, and fourth one. Think about it like this. When you come to the end of your pay period, and maybe the bank account's getting a little bit thin, you might say, I need a new paycheck. What you mean by that is, I need more of the same. I need a new paycheck. I need another paycheck. Just like the one I got last month, I need a new one so that I can keep going to the next month. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about new in the sense of totally different than what it was before. You might be struggling from paycheck to paycheck thinking, I need a new paycheck. Or perhaps you need a new kind of money. Perhaps you need not dollars, but gold. Not um, uh, paper bills, but tangible assets. That's new as far as a different kind. What Paul is describing here when he says renewing of your mind, he's describing that your mind needs to be renewed. It needs to have a different mindset. It needs to have a completely different way of thinking. Not more of the same. Not more of the same old. Same old. Now there's debate about what's meant here by the renewing of your mind. Some will say you need to gain more knowledge. We tend to think about it this way. When Paul says Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We tend to think, that means I need to read more Bible. I need to read more theology. I need to read more prayer manuals. That's not what Paul's talking about. He says that your mind needs to be changed to have a different way of looking at the world. And what is that different way of looking at the world? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. The renewed mind of the Christian... Is a mind that says, along with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does the mindset of the world say? For me to live is me and to die is loss. But the mindset of the Christian is for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the new mindset that Paul is talking about. And that's how you're transformed. Let me, let me apply this to you this way. Do you sometimes feel stagnant in your Christian life? I have. And when you grow stagnant in your Christian life, I am willing to bet that if you examine your mind, your mindset is probably in a place of selfishness and complaining and grumbling about what you don't have. More often than not, that's where we find ourselves when we grow stagnant in the Christian life. We have been conformed to this world. We've bought the lie of retail religion. I should be getting something out of this. I should be uh, receiving more praise. I should be receiving more accolades. I should be having more comfort in the Christian life. Paul is saying that you are transformed by your mind being renewed. And so the mindset you have to have is, not I, but Christ. Taking up my cross and following Him. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. That is the heart of Christian discipleship. That's the sum of what it means to be a Christian. So that when it comes time to pray, I don't always want to pray. I don't always feel like praying. But it's what God tells me to do. And so I approach it with, Lord, I'm offering myself as a living sacrifice. You have commanded us to pray. I come to you to pray. Oh, Lord, help me by your spirit to pray. And what you often find is that the Holy Spirit will work with you, and what was looked at as a burden turns into a joy. What began as something you didn't want to do turns into something you don't want to stop doing as you approach it with this mindset. Finally, Paul concludes this passage and says, You have to have this renewed mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul concludes this passage by giving us this last idea. A renewed mind so that you can test and see that God's will is the best way. God's will is the only way to live. In the way of God's commandments is the way that you ought to live. But you have to test it. You have to prove it and try it. This, again, is a very practical way of of talking about these things. It's an experiential way of talking about these things. I imagine if I asked all of you, point blank, is God's law good? You would all say yes and amen. At least I hope you would. That's not what Paul's talking about. We, We all know in our minds, theoretically, that God's law is good. We should all confess that God's law is good. What Paul is talking about in the course of your life, as you offer yourself as a sacrifice, God will prove to you, your own experience will prove to you, that it is good and acceptable to turn the other cheek. It is good and acceptable to not look with lust at other women. It is good and acceptable to tell the truth. It is good and acceptable to walk in God's commandments, and you will experience that goodness, and that perfection of the will of God. This also, by the way, is how we apply the word in our particular circumstances. I'll simply leave you with this. You cannot live as a Christian. You cannot grow as a Christian disciple unless you have this attitude unless you cultivate this mindset, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am to imitate the example of Christ so that I can do the will of my Father. Because that's what Christ has done for us. I said that was the last comment, but there is one final comment. I I thank you for your patience. I know this has been a long one. This is what is signified and sealed for us in the Lord's Supper. The sacrifice of Christ on your behalf and our commitment to sacrifice ourselves on his behalf. Think about this as we approach this table and have communion with our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus and his example And we give you thanks for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to strive with us to follow his example. We pray, O Lord, that you would conform us to his image, that we might live all of our lives doing the will of our Father in heaven. For it is your will that we ask to be done. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.